We left off in Mark chapter 16, verse 8, last time uh, that I preached. Uh, I appreciate all of the great feedback from uh, this, the sermon that was given last week with Dave Vollmer. Uh, Dave has just recently come on staff, and so we're just really excited for what he brings to the church. So I guess it was two weeks ago that we were in, in Mark chapter 16, verse 8. So we pick up in verse 9, and uh, this is the passage many people know as the Great Commission. Matthew has his version of it. Mark has his version of it. And I got to thinking about that in terms of the weekend and the commencement idea, and, and I realized well, the word commencement, to commence something, means to begin it. And I thought, isn't that odd that at the end of your school experience, you have a speech about beginning. I mean, wouldn't you expect that they would be doing a completion ceremony instead of a commencement ceremony or a cessation ceremony? You know, we've done. We don't have to do that anymore. But you all understand, and I say this partially in jest because it's fairly common knowledge, I would, I would think, that we know that the end of college or the end of high school is really the beginning of, of the next part of life. So, a commencement speech is given to encourage the graduates, hey, okay, you've, you've done your studies, now it's time to put into action the things that you've been learning the last four years of your life, or however long that you've been in school, some much longer than that, perpetual students. But the, now it's time to commence doing it. And I think that's really appropriate for the disciples. Jesus has been teaching them for three and a half years. He's... uh uh, been crucified, just as he said he would be. He's been buried. Now he's risen. And he's going to ascend to the Father, and he's going to give them a commencement speech before they go. Now imagine if you were there at your high school or your college, and this, they announced the commencement speaker. Usually it's somebody famous or well-known or a, a fig, you know, great popular figure, political, entertainment industry, what have you. But imagine if it was Jesus. Okay, I'd like to introduce our commencement speaker for this morning. It's Jesus. Come on up, Jesus. Tell us what you have to say about the future and about our lives and what we should do with our lives. What would he say? I don't think it would take him that long, but I think we have a little bit of what he would say right here. Again, you know it as the Great Commission. He would say to his graduates, his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. You're not meant to just sit in, in the seat and continue to stay in Jerusalem to your little pocket and we've got our little truth and it's just for us and we're going to keep it to ourselves. You're meant to take what's been given to you like seed and scatter it everywhere around the world. That he gives the scope of the mission, so to speak. It's worldwide. And I think that's a great commencement speech, isn't it? Now it's time to commence doing that. And I think it's very appropriate even as we will discuss as we go through the passage, even appropriate for us to discuss on this day. But before we actually start rolling through verses 9 through 20, I want to just make a note of something that is noted in your Bibles. Probably uh, you have noticed, maybe some of you have noticed, that there's a little star, or a footnote, or an asterisk there by verses 9 all the way down to 20 that says, What's it say? It says, this passage does not, is not included in many of the best or earliest manuscripts. Does your Bible say that? And it's a great opportunity for us to just talk about, well, what does that mean? You know, what do you mean it's not included in the best or earliest manuscripts? I mean, is this not scripture? I mean, and if this isn't scripture, 
how do I know what is? I mean, what do I, can I, can I even trust the Bible? How many of you have had that question? Well, the Bible is just uh, written by men and it's, you know, it's translated and people, it's like whisper down the lane or the game of telephone, you know, where things get translated wrong and, and mistransferred and you can't really trust it. Have you heard that? So let me warn you ahead of time. First, I'm going to make you really nervous, but then I'm hoping by the end, you'll be really confident. So just hang with me through this, because to explain why that asterisk is there and to take advantage of the opportunity to just speak briefly about how we got the Bible, that uh, I'm going to have to do a little rabbit trail, but we will get back sometime before three o'clock this afternoon. We will get back to the passage. No, uh, we, we first service, we finished in time. So the question is, what do they mean when they say this is not in the earliest and best manuscripts? You would think that maybe we would just go back to what Mark wrote. I mean, the Gospel of Mark, just go back to the original and see, is it in there? That would end the story, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that end the discussion? The problem is we don't have any of the original writings of the Bible. Now, that may be startling to some of you, but it's true. And so I'm just telling it to you in truth. That doesn't mean you can't trust the Bible, and I'll explain to you why. You know, remember, when the early authors wrote, Mark, Matthew, Paul, they weren't writing on uh, permanent uh, uh, chalkboards or permanent kind of uh, elements that, that could be preserved. They were writing on animal skins. They were writing on papyrus. These things break down. And so books would be copied by scribes. Someone, Mark would write the book, and then copies would be made. Uh, people, Human beings would sit down and write line by line, letter by letter, write copies. One of the challenges we face is that because of persecution throughout history, for instance, in the, in the Roman Empire, Christians were severely persecuted and many, many, many of the scriptures were burned and destroyed. But what we do have preserved is about five, over 5,300 manuscripts, which is a manuscript is a document, a codex is a book. Uh, we have over 5,000 that have been discovered archaeologically, various places around the world, Egypt, uh, you know, Rome, these, these kind of places. So we have 5,000, which is a lot in terms of ancient literature. That means we have a ton of copies of various parts of the New Testament. The problem is, is that a lot of them, they have a lot of differences in between them. In other words, um, I'll, I'll say the word, hang with me, mistakes. Did he say the Bible has mistakes? Yes, I did. Now, the Bible in its original, we believe, I believe absolutely with my whole heart, is, is inerrant, the, the very breathed out word of God. But now, here, see, I told you I was going to make you nervous, right? And you know, you've been coming here for a long time, some of you. You know, I stake my whole life on the word of God. I have no doubt, personally, that this is the word of God. And I want you to leave here knowing the same thing. So that when someone questions you or when you read something in your book, like, hey, why does that say this is not in manuscripts? What, how, can I, how can I trust it? So experts in a field called textual criticism, their whole goal is to use the 5,000 plus manuscripts that we do have, compare them to each other, and compare them to the writings of the early church fathers from, from the first century, the second century uh, AD, and then reconstruct as closely as they can, the original, the, the Bible, the way it was written. The question is, how successful can they be in doing that? Well, 
to answer that question, let me talk to you just a little bit about these variations, and then we'll get into specifically why this matters for the Gospel of Mark. So by comparing all 5,000-plus manuscripts, these experts say that there's about 200,000 variations. And you're nervous again. You're swe- I see you sweating. 200,000 variations. Now, before you freak out, drop your Bible and leave, let me, let me explain to you what those variations are. Mo- the vast, vast majority are simple misspellings, leaving out a letter. Now, see, we type. And we, don't, we, we type and we text, and you don't care if you spell stuff right anymore, right? I mean, how many of you send a text and it's got all kinds of stuff spelled wrong, or you just even care because it's all abbreviated anyway? So they hand-wrote things, and occasionally a scribe would leave out a letter. They didn't have erasers. They were writing you know, in indelible things and, and with, with specific instruments, and they couldn't just go back and erase. So they would just move on, and the word was spelled wrong. So if that word was spelled wrong in, in 4,000... You know, let's say I wrote it, and then the scribes all copied. They copied my wrong spelling in, in let's, let's not say 4,000. Let's say in 300 copies were made and all copied them wrong. That would equal 300 variants. Does that make sense? So 200,000 doesn't sound so bad when you could have this one mistake in 3,000 documents. Okay, does that, is that, so again, the scholars break that down. Those 200,000 differences only take place in about in about 10,000 places. Oh, we're feeling much better now, Pastor. Thanks for that. Well, the question is, how significant are those 10,000 places? Well, it turns out that the vast majority, again, don't affect, you'd read it and it'd still make the same sense. It wouldn't change the meaning at all. You would still be like, okay, it's just a misspelling. It's two words transposed. It's a word added that shouldn't be there. You know, simple little things that don't change the sense of what's being said. So only about, one scholar estimates, only about 400 places. This is in the entire New Testament in 5,000 documents. Only about 400 places are what will be called significant. You know, meaning that it changes the way it reads a little bit. One sentence reads a little bit different than it might in this other one here. And But of those 400 places, there's only 50 that would actually um, change the sense of what was being said. So only 50 places. So we've, we've gotten from 200,000 variations down to 50 places. And I, I point that out because the Gospel of Mark is one of those rather significant places. Another place, maybe you don't realize this, you'll look it up when you go home, John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. That's another verse very similar to this, that, that the Bible has a little footnote that says it's not in certain manuscripts. So you go home, you check that out. So 50 places are actually significant. So the question is, well, that, you know, what does that boil down? What does that mean for me reading my Bible? Well, I'll tell you this. Of those 50 places, if you took every one of those out of the Bible, let's just say they were additions by later scribes or they were wrong, whatever. If you took them all out of the Bible, it wouldn't affect any. Let me say that again. It wouldn't affect any of the doctrines of the church. So you could strip them all out of there and you'd still have a very accurate Bible. All the doctrines we teach all still present other places in the Bible. So when we talk about the Gospel of Mark, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to take one of those places like this last section and build a church doctrine on it if it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. Because we're going to talk about the doctrine or the teaching of taking up serpents. You've heard of serpent snake handling churches, right? Uh, well, the only place you see that in the Bible is here in the last part of Mark, you don't see it anywhere else in terms of doing that 
the, the early church doesn't practice it. You don't see it in the book of Acts, and, and the, it's not taught by Jesus. It's not taught by the disciples. So I'm not saying it shouldn't be in there, but all I'm saying is, knowing that there's a question, I might not build a doctrine off of that. So how does, uh, so zero doctrine affected. So the question is then, boiling all that down, how accurate is my Bible? And by the way, having 5,000 documents actually increases our ability to have accuracy because not just what's different, but all that's the same, that's consistent, document to document to document. And all of the, almost every verse, if not every verse of the Bible, can be confirmed by the teachings of the early church fathers. You know, the, the apostle John had disciples. And then they wrote letters to churches. And they had disciples, the third generation. And they wrote letters to churches. And we have those letters. And in those letters, from all these different early disciples, from the, you had the first 11 or 12, then you include the apostle Paul in there, you had the first group of disciples. And then they discipled people. And then they discipled people, and so on and so on. And you remember the hair commercial, right? And I told two friends, and he told two friends, and so on and so on. It expands. So we have all these writings, and those those people lived in the first century between, you know, Jesus' resurrection and, and 100 A.D., and they, if you put all those letters together, they quote every verse of the, of the New Testament. Because the earliest manuscripts that we really have significant are about 300 A.D. So even before that, you have guys quoting. So back to the Gospel of Mark. Here are the... Here are the um, the arguments against it, I'll just break it down. The, the biggest arguments against are, number one, there's an abrupt change between verse 8 and verse 9. So you look at verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then it goes to verse 9. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. It just seems like a weird transition, doesn't it? So some people say, well, remember, we don't have the original. So some scholars look at that and they say, well, Mark just ended it there. That's just where it ended. Others say there was probably a longer ending, but it got lost. And so someone later on added this ending. Or this could have been the ending that Mark included. But they say it's too abrupt. Well, if you look at Matthew's gospel, if you look at Luke's gospel, there are places at the end of their gospels there where they make an abrupt change from one topic to another. So it's not really a great argument that just because there's an abrupt change, we think that somebody else wrote this. That's argument number one. Argument number two is, well, the language is different. In the last 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark, that one scholar said there are 17 unique words that Mark didn't use anywhere else in his Gospel. And that would prove that, see, he didn't write it. But one person did the research. They looked back 12 verses before verse 9 and said, guess what? There's 17 words there that Mark didn't use anywhere else in his gospel. So you got to throw that argument out. Well, the challenge is there are three main codices or books uh, from the third, or excuse me, from the fourth century, 300s AD. Two of them don't include this last section. And so they said, well, that, that's why it's footnoted in a lot of your Bibles, because your Bible is written from some of those, those older books. Well, one, one of them does contain it, a very important one. Not only that, one of them that doesn't contain it leaves, leaves a big space after the ending indicating that the scribe who wrote it knew that something was supposed to be there, and he just didn't have it for whatever reason. We don't know. But the, and that's, you don't see that in any other manuscripts, a space left after the, the postscript. 
Not only that, this verse is found in 99% of the Greek manuscripts, these verses. A couple other quick things. The church fathers, I mentioned them. Some of the church fathers, well, they don't quote from this section. So they say, well, see, the church fathers didn't know this existed. They don't quote from it. But a bunch do quote from it. Some very well-known guys like Irenaeus, who died in 202. He quotes from the end of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, and a few others also do quote uh, from the end of the Gospel of Mark. And they lived earlier than those two manuscripts that don't include this section. So all of that to say, and back up to textual criticism, the scholars that do this kind of research, and I'm just summarizing a lot of it for you. There's a lot more to be understood. The question is, how accurate is my Bible? Depending on who you read and who you, whose estimate you use, anywhere from 98.3 to 99.9% accurate. I think that's pretty trustworthy. And that's amazing for an ancient piece of literature. If you were to compare like the Iliad or the Odyssey, those kind of writings, much fewer documents to put those things together. Much, and they're much farther away from the original writing. The writings we have from the Bible are very close in time to the early, from the, from the time of Jesus to the time of these writings, very close in time and space. So anyway, I hope that you can leave Maybe not understanding all of what I've said, but understanding that uh, that those that do this research are dedicated to making sure we have a Bible that's as close to the original as they can get it, using lots of evidence to put it together to say that, hey, there's some differences. Even if you threw those out, your Bible is extremely accurate, up to possibly 99.9% of agreement. Does that make sense? So I say all that to say, let's turn in our Bibles to Scripture, Mark chapter 16, verse 9. How's that for an introduction? Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Uh, You remember she was in the garden. Uh, She thought he was the gardener. He appears to her. She doesn't recognize him at first. Uh, Then when he says her name, she recognizes him, and she clings on to him, and she says, Mary, don't, don't cling to me. He has to ascend to the Father. Mary Magdalene was a woman who had seven demons. We don't know very much about her life. Um... She's oftentimes known as, uh, or given credit as being the immoral woman that is mentioned in the Bible. There's no proof of that. We don't know that she was an immoral woman. We don't know what the seven demons produced in her life. I don't think that she walked around with her head spinning around on her neck. But, uh, but I think maybe she had a life that was spinning around from the seven demons in her life. What a, what a, what a relationship. You know, the Bible says the one who is forgiven much loves much. And I think that uh, she probably loved him greatly because of what he had done for her. So she was the first one to see him. And then verse 10, she went and told those who'd been with him as they mourned and wept. Remember, they were not expecting a resurrection. They were mourning and weeping and grieving. And Mary comes to them and says, guys, guess what? He, he, He appeared to me physically. He's alive. And they were like, come on, that's cruel, Mary. Why would you tell us that? That is really not nice. You don't tell people that. That's a cruel joke. They were not expecting it at all. This is important for a number of reasons. Uh, Number one, and this is the only one I'll share with you this morning, there's a number of reasons that the bodily resurrection is important. But you might, in in the course of your lives, speak with someone who's a Jehovah's Witness. And you need to know that one of the beliefs of the Jehovah's Witnesses is that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead bodily. 
that he rose as a spirit being, spiritually, but not bodily. You cannot teach that from the New Testament. It is clear, his, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, it was not just spiritually speaking. And he's not on the earth now spiritually. You're going to see the repeat of a couple of things. Look at, back at verse 9. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. She goes and tells the others. And then verse 11 says, they heard that he, that he was alive and had been, what? Seen by her. Seen by her. Bodily, physically. Jesus is on the beach with his disciples. And, and they don't believe it. He says, give me some fish. Let me eat some fish. Can you agree with me that spirits don't eat fish? I'd be pretty fishy. Just kidding. Yeah, groan, groan, groan. Send me an email. They did not believe. They couldn't believe it. It was not expected. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, not verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form. So now we're talking about the form, another form besides the form he'd been in when he was on earth. He appeared to them, heteros, another of a different kind, Form is an external appearance. So he has an external appearance. This is the situation, Luke 24, where the disciples are going away from Jerusalem after the, the crucifixion. He appeared to them, in, to, he appeared to two of them in another form as they walked and went into the country. They're going on the road to Emmaus. Uh, they are talking about what happened. They are sad and, and bummed out because they thought this Jesus was going to, you know, bring uh, Israel to greatness again, and eh, it didn't work out. So Jesus comes up alongside of them, you know, in, in a human form. And by the way, Mary can't cling to a spirit either, right? That wouldn't work out. So Jesus comes alongside of them and says, hey, what you guys talking about? You know, I can just imagine the twinkle in his eye, you know, as he says that. Ah, uh, you know, well, you must be new around here because everybody knows that this guy, Jesus, got crucified. And we thought he was going to be something, it was nothing, and we're bummed out, and we're going home. And Jesus opens up their eyes, reveals himself to them, and he begins to preach to them. He gives, gives them the greatest Bible study probably in the history of, of the world. He begins to open up for them the scriptures, beginning in Moses and all through the prophets, helping them understand all things regarding himself. He says, guys, get your Bibles out. It's Bible study time. Let's open to Genesis, and let me show you where I am in Genesis. And let me show you where I am in Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and in Jeremiah, and in Ezekiel, and all through. And they're just going, ah, oh, wow, it's amazing. Wouldn't you like to have the video or the audio tape of that, you know, or the CD of that? Fantastic. And their hearts, they said, our hearts were burning within us as he shared with, as he opened up the scriptures to us. Phenomenal. So that's, so he appears to them, they get the Bible study, and then what's the natural thing? They go and they told it to the rest, right? You find out something like that, you can't keep it quiet. You gotta tell somebody. You guys are never gonna, Jesus is alive. So they, and what's the response? Read it right there for yourself. Verse 13, told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. See, Part of the reason I think that this scripture was written by Mark, and it's right where it's supposed to be, is because Mark is building up a case, not a, a case defending-wise, but he's building up a, uh, a point of reference for you and I and for them as they're going to go out into the world. Jesus is going to tell them to go out into the world and preach the gospel, and they're going to have to understand and expect a certain result as they do that. 
Jesus appears to them. They believe him. They go and tell others. And the response of the others is, I don't believe it. Look at verse 14. Later, he appeared to the 11. It's the disciples, Peter and James and John and the rest of the guys. As they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. You'd have thought of all the people who would have believed, they'd have been like, yeah, it's exactly what he said he was going to do. He said he was going to be crucified, and he'd rise again the third day. But they were not expecting it. And Jesus rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart. That's a cool word, interesting word, sclerocardia. Maybe you know someone who's got scleroderma, tightening of the skin, a hardening of the skin and, and the connective tissue. And if someone has scleroderma, their, their skin loses its uh, elasticity and, it, and the fingers can be, become curved and, and held in that place by the tight skin. So sclera just means hard or inflexible. And cardia is heart, sclerocardia. Uh, derma is skin, scleroderma is hard skin, sclerocardia is hard heart, but you know it's not speaking about your physical organ, the heart. You know enough to know that. Um, he rebuked their hardness of heart. The challenge is, when a person has a hard heart, it doesn't matter what kind of evidence you give them, you won't reason them into the kingdom because their heart will not expand to receive the true information that you've given and you can have discussions with Darwinian biologists, and but if a person's heart is hard, you can show them all of the evidence. I mean, I, I'm like crazy about this thing called the uh, emerald cockroach wasp. Ever heard of that? I mean, because I look around, I'm, I was a biology major, and I look at the around, around at the world we live in, and, and I look at Romans one that you know you look at the earth, and you look at the world, and, and, and it just points people to God. The heavens declare the, declare the glory of God. So by the study of science should point people to the existence of God. And when your eyes are open, you see it. So I learned about this thing called the emerald cockroach wasp. And it is so cool because this, this wasp, if you get eked out by insects, I apologize, but I got to tell the story. So this wasp, it, 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 it takes a cockroach and it uses the cockroach. It lays its eggs in the cockroach and the little babies eat the cockroach to grow up. You know, why not, right? It seems like a good thing to do with a cockroach, I guess. But it, there's two different kinds of cockroaches. It has to know what kind to get. There's cockroaches with necks and without necks. See, you never know what you're going to learn when you come. Now you know, I don't know what pastor was preaching on, but there's two types of cockroaches. One that has a neck, one that has a neck, uh, doesn't have a neck. This wasp has to find a cockroach that has a neck. And then it, it lands on its back and it stings it in its brain in a specific spot. Now look, you got, I don't know how much education you need. I think 10 years of fellowship to become a neurosurgeon to work on a human brain. You got, you got like mega education to become a neurosurgeon to be able to pinpoint and work on a human brain. This wasp, does not, never had, you know, ana cockroach anatomy 101. Now, and, and mom, mom, mom wasp never sat the kids down and said, okay, kids, someday you're going to need to, here's the diagram of the cockroach brain. You know, here's the point. That wasp knows where to sting that cockroach in its little tiny cockroach brain in the right spot to disable its flight mechanism. Fight or flight. So it stings the cockroach there. It doesn't run. 
Then it stings it a second time in a specific place so that it calms, it's calm and begins to groom itself. Just like, yeah, just hanging out, just grooming myself. So it can't run. It just grooms itself. But by the time it's, it's the, the calming mechanism is, has been activated, the, the, par, the paralytic act, activation, activation has sort of worn off so it can move again. So it's calm, it can move, and the wasp takes it. You gotta watch a video of this. The wasp takes it by the antenna and leads it like a dog on a leash back to its little cave, lays its eggs on the things, and, and, and life continues. Now, how do you do that? How do you do, how does biology, how does evolution produce that? But you can't tell that to someone whose heart is hard. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. So he rebukes their hardness of heart. They will believe. These guys, you know, they, they're going to, they, we wouldn't be here if they didn't believe, right? We didn't believe. If, if Pentecost never happened, the church would stop, would have stopped existing if they never believed. But he rebukes them. You don't want to be rebuked by Jesus for your hardness of heart. Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So there were those that had said, we saw him, we're telling you the truth. They didn't believe him, and Jesus rebukes him. And then he gives them the great commission. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So a couple other theological sort of points. First of all, uh, when we look at verse 15, i got to get a little bit of Greek stuff going here, just so you understand that the emphasis isn't on go. The emphasis is on preach. For Matthew, the emphasis is on, if you remember his, go into all the world and make disciples. The emphasis is on disciples. These are, uh, that one is what's called an imperative. You know, if you tell your kids, it's imperative that you do this. It's a command. It's like, you have got to do this. So that the emphasis of that sentence is on preaching or proclaiming. And then some people say, well, they look at the Greek and they say, well, the word go is what we call a participle. See them, you got English, you got biology just a few minutes ago. Now you're getting English class. This is a one-stop shopping here at church. A participle translates into a word that ends in ing. Swimming, dancing, those are participles, and they end in ing. So some people have said, well, what this really means is that Jesus is saying is, as you are going into all the world, preach the gospel. So it'd be like Jesus saying, okay, look, guys, you know, kind of as life is happening, as you move around here and there, you know, as it comes, then just preach the gospel. And, and that's true. I mean, as you are going to work, as you are going on vacation, as you are going wherever you go, you move here, you move there, as you're going, preach the gospel. I mean, that's the first place to start is wherever you are. And we can, we can agree on that. But actually, the emphasis here is on the fact that you have to go before you can preach. So the emphasis is on preach the gospel, but it's going not in the sense of, well, when you get around to it, it's you can't preach somewhere you haven't been. So you have to go so you can preach. The goal is preaching, but you can't go, you can't preach somewhere you haven't gone. And there's a lot of places that need. I, I, I have a confession to make. I freaked out the early service today because I got to talking about in my heart for Italy. Years ago, I was at a pastor's conference and uh, one of the guys who was a missionary in, he was in Hungary, had started the Bible college in, in Vita, Hungary, 
Calvary Chapel has Bible colleges all over the world. We have a Bible college in Hungary. And he gets up to talk about, you know, the status of the church in Hungary, what's going on there. And, and he's in, in, involved in a lot of the missions work for Calvary Chapel. And he said, you know, we've got a lot of young people in our Bible colleges all over the world. And they're graduating and they're going out to plant churches. And that's awesome. But he said, you know what we could really use? We could really use some seasoned pastors to go out and plant churches too. And it just kind of stuck in my brain. I'm like, wow, I never really thought about that. Now, yeah, maybe we could someday. That's just been in my pocket all the time. And, uh, and the Lord has, over time, given us a heart for northern Italy. I found out from a pastor there that there's like almost no Bible teaching churches in northern Italy. Like if you were traveling in Italy and you want to go to church on Sunday, you would have a really hard time finding a church where they'd open up the Bible and teach like this. It's just not there. We have it so good. We got radio stations. We got video, audio, internet. I mean, you name it. We got the Bible, Word of God coming to us in a thousand directions. But there's some people around the world that just don't have it. They just don't have it. So my heart hears that, and it breaks. And I say, I don't want to take the gospel where there's already a saturation. If you live in Fluvanna County, and most of you do, there's a number of ways for you. If you want to hear the gospel, you can do it. If you want to hear Bible teaching, you can sit at home and, and pull it up on your internet. And you can get it if you want. And there's churches upon churches. So I say, why don't we? And, I, and, and so the first, the first service freaked out because they thought like we were getting ready to pack and leave to Italy. Hey, if that's what the Lord called, we would go. That's not, we love Calvary Chapel Fluvanna. I'm saying this because you're going to talk to your friends. Did you hear what Steve said? They're moving to Italy. No, I'm not saying we're moving to Italy yet. No, I'm just, um, we're, we're, we're right here where the Lord wants us. But my heart is for people in Italy. And the Lord, I was just sitting down going, Lord, I just can't believe that we have it so good. We open our Bibles and we, and we have someone, you know, I, I heard people teaching me the word. I'm glad someone came to me. Actually, the radio station was instrumental in my life. I heard someone preaching the, the gospel over the radio. Um, but I look at the map in Italy and say, Lord, where do you want us to go? You know, I, look, I want to be a church that goes, not just comes. And I said, well, where do you want us to go? And he, it's like the Lord spoke to me. Very few times in my life would I say the Lord spoke to me. That was one of the times. He said, Steve, pick anywhere. None of them have solid Bible teaching. Pick anywhere. I pick Hawaii. <laughs> hey, there's somebody suffering it out for the Lord. I know a guy who went from California and said, hey, going to plant a church in Hawaii. Going to really suffer for the Lord in Hawaii. There's a lot of Calvary chapels in Hawaii, by the way. Uh, so, you know, you see the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit sending out people. And so when you talk to your friends and they freak out because Steve and Helga are moving to Italy to plant a church, just tell them, no, he corrected it, second service. I said, what if we did that? What would you say? What if I said, you know, I feel like Helga and I are called to go. Would you say, no, 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 you can't go. I'd say, yes, 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 read your Bible. It says go. Just being obedient. Now, I can't say that God is, that this, point saying to, to Stephen Helga, go, but I think he is saying to our church, go. And that may mean that someone in this room might say, you know what? Maybe it's, maybe it's me. Maybe I could relocate to Italy and meet a whole lot of other people from the United States that have relocated their lives to other places around the world to just take the gospel to people that don't have it. I'm so blessed I feel so blessed. And I say, how can we keep it to ourselves? There was a tribe, man goes to a tribe, takes the gospel, tells about this God that died on the cross for them. 
And they, the, the village elders consult with one another and they come back to the guy and they said, we, we, we hear what you're saying, but we only have one problem. What's that? If that's true, if what you say is true and this Jesus who hung on the cross and died for us and he's the way of salvation, he's the way to God, if that's true, then why did it take you so long to come? Oh, good question. This is the commencement speech, folks. The commencement speech isn't stay. The commencement speech is go. And I agree, you know, go right where you are. Go next door. Go wherever you are. Take it. But maybe for some of you, it means that you're going to go somewhere around the world. And we'll be the first to come behind you and say, man, we want to support you, pray for you, and send you out to go. I think it's time for this church. 12 years we've been going. Uh, we, we've been serving. And we're good at supporting other people that go. But I'm praying, Lord, I want you to start raising up people from among us to go. And not necessarily just young folks. Anybody. Anybody willing to go. Some of you guys are in the military. You've been in the military. You know, when the military calls you up and says, okay, we're deploying you, you don't go, ah, you know, I'd love to. Like, the Middle East sounds great to me, but now's a really bad time. You know, I got... Yeah, I got the children's, my kids' birthdays next month, and, you know, I was just going to get the car washed, and, you know, I got things going on here. It's just not a good time, and, uh, you know, I don't really want to. Your life is not your own. You know, my life is not my own. It's been bought with a price. So if Jesus, if I say to, if I say he is my Lord, that means if he says, Steve, I need to deploy you. Joyce, I need to deploy you. And you're going, Hawaii, 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 you know. <laughs> India, no! <laughs> no. But that's the cool thing about the body of Christ is you think, oh, he's going to send me somewhere I hate. You watch the Lord give you a burden. If you pray, God, I'll go wherever you want. I'll do whatever you want. My life is not my own. I've been bothered. I'll do whatever you want. You watch the Lord begin to cultivate a burden in your life. And it may not mean you go. There's people that stay and support those that do go. That's the cool thing about it. But this command... The other quick thing I'll tell you is that this is a, um, the, the part of speech this is, isn't based on a, a certain amount of time. So there's no time restraint to this. Uh, it's, it's in the Greek, it's called the aorist tense, and it comes from the Greek word where we get horizon or without horizon. So this verse, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, is without horizon, meaning there's no limitation to it. So it's for the church, for all church history for all time. So we're still to be going and taking the gospel out. I didn't write it. This is Jesus saying it. This is his commencement speech to us. Uh, quick note, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Some have taken that to, to mean that if you're not baptized, then you're not saved. It's a doctrine called baptismal regeneration. I had a long conversation with a, a guy local here who's in a church who where they teach baptismal regeneration which means that if you go home at night and you are convicted while you're, you're, you're tossing and turning in your bed, 2 a.m., you wake up and you just go, I just got to be saved. You kneel down on the side of your bed and you ask Jesus to come into your life to forgive your sins and to save you. Well, if you believe in baptismal regeneration, you have to call the elders of your church right then and say, come over and baptize me. Because if you don't do that, so they'll come over, the elders of your church come over, you know, bathrobe, whatever, slippers, and they'll baptize you at 2.30 in the morning. Because if you don't do that, if you get up in the morning and you go to work and you get hit by a car and you die, you weren't saved. 
your confession of belief and faith by your bed was not enough. You need Jesus and baptism is what they would say, and they would use this verse as one of the proof texts. So I had a long conversation over across the table with this guy teaching this, and he said, well, give me, give me, you know, give me an example. I said, the thief on the cross. He said, it doesn't count. Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't resurrected yet. Ah, you can't do that. So I said, let me think. Well, first of all, I went back to the Old Testament, Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Before he was circumcised, before any of that stuff happened. But then the Lord showed me Acts chapter 10, household of Cornelius. We'll get there when we're in the book of Acts. But just so you know, the gospel comes. Peter preaches to this household of a Gentile man. As he's preaching, the Spirit of God falls on this people, uh, on this group of people. They begin to, to speak in, uh, in other languages. And it's clear that God has come into their hearts. And that the Peter and the other guys look around and go, well, I guess we should baptize them. Why? Because they're saved. I mean, Jesus, the, the Lord has come into their lives. So... I guess we should baptize them. They were saved, and then they were baptized. And that's what this verse is saying. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. It doesn't say he who believes and is not baptized will be condemned. That's not what it says. But that's where the brain wants to go. It's called a negative inference fallacy. A negative inference fallacy. It's a faulty line of reasoning. You could say a dog with brown spots is an animal. But does that mean a dog without brown spots is not an animal? No, a dog without brown spots is still an animal. This verse says nothing about someone who believes and is not baptized. But it just says if you believe, the natural process is then you would be baptized. And I encourage you to do just that. If you've, if you've become a believer, maybe today you're going to give your heart to the Lord. Then the next step for you is to be baptized as a public proclamation of a relationship and identification with Jesus Christ. But it's not for your salvation. It's from your salvation. And I don't want to, to overlook this too quickly. He says, uh, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Well, how could a God who's so loving send people to hell? How could a God who's so loving condemn people? Well, he doesn't. He says, if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. Whoever, whosoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be, not could be, shall be saved. You can know that you know that you know today. If you are not saved, if you, if you worry about your eternity, if you, you've been to a funeral recently and you go, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. I don't know if I've done enough good works. I don't know how this works. I can tell you that today, with 100% confidence, because I have the word of God, that if you believe in Jesus, who he is, what he did for you to forgive your sins, dying on a cross, took your place so you could have a right relationship with God and be forgiven, you can know that you will have eternal life. You can know it. But if, you, if when that comes to you, if I preach that to you or you hear that and you reject it, remember, they're going to take the word out. Some are going to accept it, some are going to hear and believe, and some are going to reject it. Our job is just to be the messenger. The question is, will you believe it when you hear it? If you don't believe it, the Bible says, then you will be condemned. Eternal destruction, eternal separation from the Lord. Verse 17, And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. We've been over that ground in the Gospel of Mark. We see that even in the book of Acts. They will speak with new tongues, uh, new languages, unlearned languages. Um, do we see that in the book of Acts? We'll talk more about that as we get into 
the book of Acts in future studies. In verse 18, they will take up serpents. How about that one, huh? Did Warren bring a snake up here with him this morning? Did he bring that up? Not rubber ones. They're speaking, and there's churches that practice this. A lot of them are in Appalachia, that area. There are churches that they have copperheads and, and, um, uh, rattling, rattlesnakes all in their service and they dance around and they carry these things and they point to this verse to, uh, to validate it. And, uh, they're not going into all the world, by the way. They don't, they kind of overlook that one. Well, it also says go into all the world, so I hope you're doing that. But, the challenge with this is, is that it's just a dumb thing to do. It's just illogical. See, remember Jesus when he got tempted by, by Satan? It, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. You know, he's out, he's, he's been fasting 40 days and the, Satan comes to him. One of the temptations is, Jesus, I know the Word of God says that, uh, the Lord won't let you hurt yourself. You, you could, why don't you jump your, jump off of the top of the temple and jump down and the Bible says the angels won't let you dash your foot upon a stone. They'll come in and they'll rescue you. So you jump and, and God will rescue you. Go ahead, do it. And what did Jesus say? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You know, it's not to be, you know, that would be stupid. You know, say, well, I'm going to go, uh, here's, I don't know if the Lord wants me to live or not, so I'm going to go stand in front of a bus. And if the Lord wants me to live, he'll save me. No, you're going to die. You better get right with the Lord before you do that. Because a bus is really big. <laughs> and you're not. So what this is speaking of is, again, the context is as you're going. The Apostle Paul, the island of Malta, he's shipwrecked. He's collecting firewood. And it's cold and rainy, and under the firewood is a viper. He picks up the firewood, the viper latches onto his arm, everybody sees it. They're thinking, this guy was a prisoner, uh, the ship got shipwrecked, God's going to give him what he's deserving. He's going to get him with a viper. Can't get away, can't get away from God. So the viper bites him, and they're all waiting, watching Paul. It's like, when's he going to die? They're just waiting for him to die. But he doesn't die. So God preserved him from that. That's the sense of, you know, while you're out there preaching the gospel, you're going to be in some dangerous places. You know, all the world includes places with snakes and vipers and things like that. Poisonous stuff. And he says, go. And, and basically God is saying, you're not going to go alone. You're not going to go alone. They'll take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, I wouldn't suggest it, but I've been to some places where I wasn't sure quite what I was eating uh, or drinking. In, in Mongolia, they drink fermented mare's milk. How about that? You want to take the gospel to Mongolia? You got to pre prepare yourself for that. I had a friend that was uh, big into missions, and he uh, would, would travel a lot. And, of course, where you go, you know, you, you just eat whatever the food is there. And he had a prayer that he would pray, Lord, where you lead me, I will follow, and what you feed me, I will swallow. I've prayed that prayer. I said, oh, I'm not sure what this is, but, uh, Lord, I'm uh, Mark 16, you know, drinking or eating, thing deadly will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover uh, some of you have experienced that. Doesn't happen all the time, but it happens. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Uh, they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. See, some people think the signs are the point, are, are the emphasis, and they get all hung up with, 
searching after signs and following signs. It says that the signs are just a confirmation of what, gang? Of the Word. It's the Word that goes out, and then the signs point to the fact that what God said is that what we're saying to you is the truth. And the signs just confirm that. So don't get hung up with those that go chasing after signs and wonders and from spirit-filled meeting to spirit-filled meeting, they become spirit-filled junkies and spirit-filled addicts. And then you never hear the Word of God. The point is, is the Word of God is the emphasis. The Word of God is the central. Amen? They went out preaching everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the Word through the accompanying signs, and Mark ends his gospel with amen. And that's where we close for the day. So, speed theology today, huh? Lots of process. So as the praise team comes back up, uh, we're going to close in song. I hope a couple things have been accomplished. Number one, uh, that you leave with actually a greater confidence in the Word of God. I have staked my life on it. What if, what if I die and I found out it was all a lie? Then we're all in the same place. Then we're in the same place with the people that rejected it. But what if we die and, and, believe, and find out that it was all true? Which is what I think we'll find out. But it's, the Bible says it's given unto man once to die and then the judgment. You don't get to go round again. You don't get to put another, well, I show my age. I almost said get to put another quarter in the machine. Hello. From the arcade days. You don't get just a series of new lives. You get, listen, you get one life. That's it. And then into eternity. And so, number one, I want you to know you can trust this Bible. Absolutely. I've never, I've never found God's Word to fail. Amen. I've never gone, well, that was wrong. Matter of fact, quite the opposite. I've often found my own reasoning to fail and the Word of God to be true. You can trust the Word of God. And today, you can know for sure that when you die, you will open up your eyes on the other side, looking into the face of Jesus Christ. You can know. You can know for sure. How? By believing. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But you can also know that if you choose to harden your heart against what's been said, then when you open up your eyes on the other side, it will be in, in darkness and separation and, and eternal destruction. And, and let it not be because you, you say, well, I never heard. You've heard it. So today could be the day of salvation. I'm not, meant, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not a scare tactic guy. You know, I'm not like trying to scare you. I'm just trying to give you the truth so that you can make an informed decision, right? Isn't that what you appreciate? So let's stand and we'll close uh, with a prayer and a song.